You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to the Magnet Vita Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Kornfeld. My guest today is the delightful Lauren Ashley Smith. Lauren, thank you for talking. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so, so excited. Uh, I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. Lauren performs here at the Magnet with Titan on Wednesdays as part of Megawatt, as well as the Friday Night Show, the aptly titled show, which you can see on Friday nights. Mm -hmm. You can also currently hear in the background pipe work going on (laughs) in the building, the endless, tireless efforts of building management to ensure that the Magnet Training Center is in tip-top shape. Uh, um, It occurred to me when I was thinking about this interview uh, that you are one of those people who I've known for a very long time, but I don't know a lot about. That's, yeah, I feel the same. Yeah. Uh, So how did you get into comedy, I guess would be my first question. Or we can back up even further. Where are you from? I'm from St. Louis. Okay. And uh, I was born in Chicago, in a suburb of Chicago, but mostly grew up in St. Louis. And um, I got into comedy, like, the first time I sort of realized that, like, comedy was fun or something I could do was when I was in high school. Um, I did speech and debate like a real nerd. Mm -hmm. And I did the interp side, so that was more like you would do monologues and play characters and all that stuff. And I did that a lot, but I did it on the dramatic end. And my dad was the coach of my team, and one weekend, like some tournament or something, someone who was supposed to do humorous interpretation, where you do like a full like one-person sketch playing multiple characters, that person like got sick or dropped out or something. And my dad was like, well, we got to fill the spot. You have to do it. And I was like, I really don't want to. Like, <laughs> I don't have anything prepared. He was like, that's okay. You can take the day off of school on Friday and learn this piece. So I was like, all right. Took the day off of school, learned this uh, piece from the Colored Museum by George C. Wolfe, and played about six different characters from the play. Like, my dad cut together, like, a sort of through line. And I did it, and I went to the weekend tournament thinking I was going to get cut in, like, the first round. And I made it to the second round. I was like, that's weird, because, like, I barely have this memorized. But then, fast forward to Sunday, I won the whole tournament Hmm. in humorous interpretation. And I was like, that is so weird, because I am not funny at all. And at that point, I was like, maybe this is something that I want to pursue. This felt really fun, and people, like, didn't boo me out of the room, so it was enjoyable. So I kept doing that throughout high school, and then um, I, when I went to college, I did a short-form improv team during the four, four years that I was there. Where and were you in, in college? At Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and so after uh, that, mm-hmm. I moved here and did Story Pirates, which is an arts education program for kids that like relies a lot on sketch and humor. But when I got Story Pirates, I got in and I was really excited, but I was extremely shy. Like, I don't think I spoke a word to anyone off of, like, off stage. Mm-hmm. I was just extremely nervous in my shell. I, everyone knew each other from Northwestern. I didn't know them. You know, everyone was someone's old roommate or someone's old whatever, and I, I wasn't. Um, even though they were really welcoming, I just, like, was really shy and it was affecting the way that I was performing the shows and then I sort of started to look around at the people in Story Pirates that I really admired like Peter McNerney and Leslie Kareen and I started to put together that they were all improvisers Mm. and I thought maybe I should get back into that maybe that's something that I should pursue a little bit more and I talked to them and they said they were at the magnet and so I started taking classes this is like 2007 Mm mm-hmm Cool. I didn't realize that you were part of Story Pirates for so long. Yeah. That's going back. That's like the original crew of Story Pirates. I in was New York. like, yeah, I started in 2006. So I was like in one, and maybe the second or the first like real class of like new non Northwestern people. Yeah. Uh, going back for a second to speech and debate, mm-hmm. I, I was in debate too in junior high school. Okay. Oh, cool. And it sounds like my experience was very different from your experience. We didn't have the speech side of it. We just had the debate side. Mm-hmm. So how did, it, how did it go exactly? You guys, there would be debate competitions, but there would also be like oratorical competitions? Yeah, so they would have the debate. So they'd do like Lincoln-Douglas debate or mm-hmm. whatever. And then at the same tournament, they would have the interps interpretation. So you would have dramatic interpretation, duo interpretation. So two people would do a scene, a 10-minute scene, humorous interpretation, one person, um, they had duet acting, I want to say, which is again two people. Then they had things like radio speaking, which I also did, where you would just read like a five minute 
radio report that you put together from the news of that day Hmm. and try to hit five minutes and they would like judge you on your voice and your pacing and the stories that you picked and your commercial and all that stuff. Um, that sounds amazing. It's really weird. Like you sit in a classroom and like some adult like fills out your ballot. Yeah. What a useful thing to know for later on in your Mm -hmm. career though. It's like a perfect place to begin learning. Totally. I was in debate in, in, uh, I did Lincoln Douglas in seventh grade and eighth grade in junior high. And if I don't mind saying so, I was very good at it. Did you have a tub? A tub? Like they, the kids with that did debate always had like a huge like plastic tub of just like papers, like information. <laughs> no, I don't, we didn't have a tub, but we, we did have like, I had a backpack filled with gotcha. stuff. Debate, I have the warmest memories of debate and, and that same thing too of somehow getting a free pass of like, oh, you don't have to go to class. You're, you're in debate yeah. club. Um, it, it, like at, for me, like two really formative memories in junior high school or debate. And, and when I finally got into drama class and there was, both of them had that like after hours kind of above, we don't play by the same rules as everybody else in the school mm-hmm. plays by. And it was also the, the, it's where I started like, uh, uh, seriously talking to girls for the first time <laughs> when we were preparing debates and like having heart to hearts with people. Uh-huh. And, you know, like it's just like a very like beautiful time of your life and, and, and like a very special, like, Oh, the kind of weird people seem to be in debate. Yeah. Uh, um, I've actually spoken to a, a number of really funny people this last, um, two or three weeks and found out that they've all been part of debate clubs in junior high school and high school. It's interesting. Yeah, it is know. interesting. And going back to what you said about having like warm feelings about it. I have the same since my dad was my coach. So that was a lot of the time that I spent with my dad in high school was like working on speech and debate stuff. Like he was the coach, he was the director. And that was a huge bonding moment for us that like, because my sisters were younger and they were not in high school with me, that was like one-on-one time that I got to spend with my dad and Mm -hmm. like see him be passionate about something and, um, give me all this, like these like life lessons really. And that is, that was a really special time in my life. Is that, what is it like to, like, do you do to, to work alongside your dad at that age? do you kind of like suspend like father daughter relationship and and you're just like working, you share like a mutual passion? Yeah, I I sort of, I feel like my dad was extremely direct with me in a way that as his child, you know, my dad is a very sensitive person and a very, um, emotionally aware person. So he would be always be very careful, especially as the dad of three daughters to like be careful with our feelings. Mm. But in speech and debate, he'd be like, don't breathe there. Just don't do that. Or I got sick at one tournament or something. Again, another weekend tournament. I was so ill. I could not like move. Like my mom put my little suit on me because I was performing in suits (laughs) um, and like got me ready. And I was just like laying in the kitchen floor of my house. And it was like some big tournament. And my dad just like stepped over my body and was like, I'll be in the car. (laughs) All right. Um, But yeah, so that that relationship was really uh I think it sort of built the adult relationship that I have with him now because we speak very directly and like very openly and honestly with each other still. Was he um, an actor or a teacher? Um, My dad is a teacher. Uh Yeah, he is a professor. And um, when he was in high school, he was a performer and did speech and debate and coached a lot of kids, Mm -hmm. including my uncle, who's now an actor, and some other people from Chicago that have gone on to be actors as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, he's he's a teacher. So he before he went to college and got his PhD and everything, he was a high school teacher and like a sub. And, um, now he is a professor. What does he teach? He teaches, uh, African American studies and American studies. Here's, um, uh, uh, kind of a big question, mm-hmm. but I've been, uh, uh enjoying this one recently. Mm-hmm. What do you think you got from each of your parents? Emotion, like just like, uh, like in, what, what, yeah, what, what parts of your personality do you think you've inherited from each of them? Mm. I know it's a really big question, but it's a fun That's thing a to think about, question. isn't it? Um, I definitely got my ability to talk at length about anything from my dad, mm-hmm. for sure. He's a talker. He's a teacher. So yeah. it's like he's always talking and always is probably the authority in the room on any given topic. Mm-hmm. So when I get going on like stuff that... I am the authority on like generally like pop culture, like unfortunately reality shows. Like I can just keep going and talk about the nuances of that. So that I got from my dad. I think I got my sense of humor from my mom. And for mm. a long time, I didn't realize that my mom was like really funny. Mm-hmm. 
And now as an adult, this woman, her timing, the things that she says, I'm like, I wish I was as funny as my mom. But I think I got the way that I see the world in a very lighthearted, because it usually comes from a place of like trying to be like, everything's great, Mm -hmm. you know, let's make it, it has to be great if this is funny about it. And I think I got that from her. Yeah. It's interesting that you you didn't realize until later on that your mom was funny and that you didn't think of yourself as funny either when you were younger. Yeah. But scored real high on all the comedy points. Mm -hmm. I can't get over that. That's so, oh man. Yeah. I would have loved that when I was in high school. It was so fun. That's super cool. It's interesting to hear that you were a wallflower when you first joined Story Pirates because I always think of you as being extremely confident and extremely bright and extremely social. Well, thank you. Well, yeah. Um, that loosened up when you started improvising, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what, what was the experience for you when you got into the improv world? I, I, I owe everything to the magnet, honestly, because when I started level one, I was just so shy. Mm. And even up until I think, I think level three with James Eason was the first level that I really started to feel empowered Mm. as an improviser. Cause I was in my head a lot in level one and level two, especially with, I got the, had the privilege of being taught by Armando. Mm. And that to me, I was just like every class, I just had my jaw on the floor at how smart and funny and wise and how much he had to offer. So, it took me a while. Like I'm someone that's always kind of a late bloomer. So like, it takes me a while to get to places where I feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so it took to level three and, but there was something about either the form or James is really out there, um, personality and Mm -hmm. really like, high energy or maybe it was that I now knew my classmates because we'd kind of come up together that I really felt that I was able to be wow I feel very comfortable on stage I feel very comfortable in a scene with someone else I feel very comfortable in this really safe space it's okay to open my mouth and and talk Mm -hmm. it's I like that the feeling of empowerment and and the feeling of being at ease seem to go hand in hand when you get really good at improv. The more relaxed and open you are, the more powerful mm-hmm. you feel. It's not like a thing of suddenly feeling like strength coursing through you. It's just this kind of like, it's like a, a weight being lifted and mm-hmm. this ability to just kind of like breathe and be at peace with yourself. And, and then suddenly you feel this like ownership of yourself and this ownership of what you have to say. Um, um, so, so, I want to talk about pop culture for a second. Okay. Uh, you, along with improvising, you also write for Reductress, mm-hmm. um, and you work for VH1. I well, okay. I used to work for VH1. Okay. I feel like this. I don't know if I spoke about it so much that now no one will ever let me work for anything else. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because I just did a job for VH1 last okay. week. So kind of. Okay. But the show that I write for is on Bravo. Okay. But I did write for VH1 show last week. So. Well, I think the last time that you and I really sat down and, and talked together at any length, you were producing at VH1. Yes. Um, best week ever? Yes. Uh, um, what does producing a show like that entail? Um, that's a great question. Um, producing is really complicated. Mm-hmm. So when I was producing at um, Best Week Ever on VH1, what I did basically was like everyone on the show was responsible for pitching things. So like in the morning, every morning we had a meeting where there was like a huge wall sized television in the room. And we had this cool program where you could like pick clips from TV shows from the night before. So everyone was assigned like three shows to watch every night. And then you would come to the meeting being like this four minutes or 90 seconds of The Bachelor was really funny. What can we do with it? Mm -hmm. And everyone sort of goes around the room with links, photos, stories, and video. So as a producer, our job then was to try to make something of all of that information. So whether it was pitching segment ideas or um, pitching people to be on the show, it was like hands-on. So at that point, once the shows, once the ideas for that week are solidified, then you're assigned like say a sketch or a package, a clip package, which is where you see talking heads talking like mm-hmm. around like a clip or something. That would be my job then to do write the questions for what like what questions I would want to ask a comedian to get a funny bite from them about this video, do the interview with them, write the script for it. So pick the you know the moments from the video that are important and pick the best jokes, put them together in a way that makes sense, sit with an editor and like figure it out together, 
um, and send it off to like the big bosses. How many producers are working on one show? On that show, I believe there were four producers. So there were like four producers that each had like a production assistant, an associate producer, a writer, and an editor. Okay. And then at the end of the week, that was on once a week, right? Mm-hmm, it was on Fridays. Okay. At the end of the week, uh, um, how many segments would you personally have on any given show? Probably um, between two and three, depending, because okay. we would overproduce and mm-hmm. then stuff would get cut. So, like, I might be working on four things on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday they'd be like, actually, let's just forget that weird thing with, like, the ice pick. We're just not going to pursue that any further. Mm-hmm. So then it would drop down to three, but then maybe I'd pick up somebody else's something. But generally, at least one, but between one and four. That sounds like a huge amount of work. Yes. Did you find it stimulating? I did. Yeah. I found it stimu- almost overstimulating. It was just extremely, it was a grind. Yeah. Like. We were there very late on Wednesday and Thursday nights, but it is the best feeling having worked on multiple weekly shows at this point. It's the best feeling in the world when the show is sent off to the NOC, which is the place that airs it, Mm -hmm. and you get to walk out of the building never to think of that stuff ever again Mm -hmm. until Monday, Mm -hmm. and you do another version. Mm -hmm. But it's so liberating to be like, I only at most have to work on this for four days. Yeah. Uh, um, would you watch an episode after it was done or were you like done with it? Sometimes, but at that point, like I'd seen it so many times and we'd have a screening on Friday mornings of the episode. Mm -hmm. But if there was something I was really excited by or I felt extremely like proud of, generally I would watch it and like watch Twitter at the same time to like see what people were responding to. Mm -hmm. How, How did you get into doing that? How does it, how did you become a producer? I came to New York with the intention of like doing comedy and performing, but I knew that I needed a job. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was lucky enough to get an internship at VH1 with VH1 News. And they told me that my internship was going to be with the writers of Best Week Ever. Mm-hmm. And then I got there and they were like, actually, um, we're going to move you, which mm-hmm. I was extremely livid about. I was so mad, but I didn't say anything. And I just like, did it and VH1 News ended up being great. I thought news was boring, but it was like red carpets and movie premieres and all that stuff. I was like, uh, this is fine. Mm. So I did that for a summer, and then after that, uh, after I graduated, they hired me as a production assistant. Mm. So I did that for like eight months, and then I got promoted to associate producer. Did that for a couple months, and I got promoted to segment producer. So I was like doing like a lot of red carpet interviews and like going to movie junkets and like sitting across from people for three minutes asking them questions about their movie Mm -hmm. or whatever. So after a certain point, I sort of realized, I don't know if I want to keep doing like red carpets and this kind of stuff forever. So I talked to some people at VH1 and I moved over into doing clip shows. So like I Love the Blank Mm -hmm. or the 40 Greatest um, Couples of 2004, like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. started doing that. Um, And that required a lot more writing like just sort of conceiving of like what are the jokes what is the voiceover supposed to be what is all this um and then best we ever came along and they asked me to produce on the show which i was ecstatic about i felt like it came fully full circle from my failed internship um and i did that for a year and then the next season because i had like tried so hard to like pitch a lot of stuff and i pitched one segment that took off and I ended up writing a lot of it for the most part I got to submit a writing packet for the next season and then became a writer Mm -hmm. um which was like then I was like yes this is what I this is what I wanted Mm -hmm. this is all I wanted when I moved to New York was to be a writer on a tv show and now I have it Mm -hmm. and it was great I want to backtrack for a second how did you go from being a high school student who didn't think that you were funny to moving to New York specifically for a career in comedy. What happened in, in that intervening time? I don't know a lot of ego. I don't, I really don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just knew I wanted to live in New York uh-huh. and I had a lot of, uh, thankfully like my uncle is an actor. And so I knew that like that could be a profession. Like I had a very direct example of someone that had gone to New York or LA and like made money made a living Mm -hmm. performing and I just thought you know what let let me try it 
because I don't want to drive. So if I move out to St. Louis, I have to drive. So mm-hmm. let me move to New York. There's something about like, even as like, as like oversaturated as we are with media and even being in the comedy world, there's still something where like when you don't have the example of someone who's tangibly making a career out of it, it seems somehow like just this magical mm-hmm. other place. It seems like completely out of your grasp. Having somebody to point to and, and just seeing that like, oh, you can have a lifestyle yeah. doing this for a living is so terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, this is a weird question, but when you were officially called a writer, mm-hmm. did you start to find that writing came quicker or easier to you? No. Harder? Harder. Yeah. Uh, uh, why? Because when I was a producer, I was like, okay, if I write this and it sucks, no one's going to be like, well, that was your job to make it this good. Yeah. You're the, I was the producer. So I was already like doing, I was already overachieving at that point to be writing. And I knew that someone else would fix it if it wasn't up to par. When I became a writer, I was like, that is the, t- that, my job is one word mm-hmm. and it is writer. So if I can't be good at that, then I'm failing at my job. And that is a huge thing to have hanging over your head. Mm-hmm. I I get the opposite. Really? Well, weirdly enough, partly because like the writing that I do is so kind of low stakes mm-hmm. that nobody really cares. But uh, that's not true. Thank you. Um, and part of it, I think, was like I have no idea how to write anything, and I kind of like stumbled ass backwards into suddenly writing a bunch of scripts for stuff mm-hmm. that are being produced. And and then when I started being called a writer, I was like, oh okay, I guess that I do sense. know how to write. And yeah. then it was just like, okay, this is how I do stories now. Interesting. But it, I don't know if it were in like a higher pressure situation, I don't know that that my brain wouldn't flip a switch completely and mm-hmm. feel that pressure of like having to execute this job really well. What what's the difference? Like, what is it when you were writing at VH1? Mm-hmm. What is like the weekly responsibility look like? What does your week look like? What does your year look like? How how, how much of a year are you working? Um, it depends because most of the shows that I've worked on are like very contingent upon like the channel's programming. So I would maybe work for like for real seven months, six months out of the year uh, as a writer. And then the rest of the year, I'd either take off or like take little jobs like writing. That's what I do now. Like during the summer is mm-hmm. generally when you're off. Um, but on a show like that, the one thing that surprised me about being a writer for Unscripted, which is what I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means like clip shows, weekly shows, anything that's kind of like talk or commentary or whatever, um, is that part of being a writer is coming up with ideas. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I thought my job was going to be like, Here's, writing here's, works here's, the, here's what we need yep. you figure it out yeah, yeah but like a lot of it was like we want to do this thing with huggies figure out how to make like a funny sketch with huggies yeah. or whatever and so a lot of the day would be spent like coming up with ideas which is really fun but i i that never occurred to me i would never done the job before so it's a different part of my brain i had to learn how to exercise do you work well by yourself or do you prefer having other people to bounce ideas off of I find that I am harder on myself when I'm by myself. Okay. But I, when I'm harder on myself, I, the product is better. Mm-hmm. But I love working with other people because it's like improv, you know? It, it's you, the first idea and your idea is never the best idea. It's always when someone else is like, what if we did that and maybe add a little bit to this? And it's like, yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I, my brain wouldn't have come up with that by myself. Yeah. You know, and sometimes a lot of my job is people saying, we want to do something like this. And that's the yes. And then, or that's the idea. And then I yes and it and try to make it into something amazing. So it's like always a collaborative thing. Yeah. And I prefer it. Yeah. In my last job, I was the only writer, but I was thankfully surrounded by like a great team of like amazing people, great minds that were great at coming up with ideas. So it never felt like I was like on an island. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Best Week Ever, we had a real like writer's room feel and that a lot of great stuff came out of that. I, I worked a job a little over a year ago. Um, I don't think I can name the company that okay. I worked for, so I'm not going to, but a bunch of us were brought into a room for a week and we were shown like 70 of this company's products mm-hmm. and we had to write like uh, uh, 10 to 30 second commercials for like oh all of God. their products. And it was such a blast. It was so much fun. And that was another one of those things where I went into it with a real sweat of mm-hmm. like, I don't know that I can do this. But just sitting around and, and, and like dicking around with each other ended up 
producing the best ideas. Totally. When we were actually trying to work on something, it wasn't nearly as good as when you're just like tearing something apart or, totally. complete, or completely being like a goofball. And yeah. then you find this like magic idea. It's like, oh, wait, that's perfect. And we mm-hmm. were lucky enough to work with a producer where we would just come up with something so stupid and be like, that would actually be really funny. Is that possible? And he's like, yeah, no problem. We could, we could buy a couch. That's fine. You know, it's right. like, oh, cool, man. That's such a good opportunity to have someone because that's important too, is to have someone that like trusts you and yeah. trusts the group of you and your ideas. Yeah. To be like, yeah, we'll buy a couch. Like, I don't totally get it because I am not as weird of a person, but I trust it and yeah. I trust that it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and when you have that support from somebody and, and when you know that it can become tangible, that like, oh, they can produce this mm-hmm. for you, they have the budget and they are like cool with it, they think your ideas are, are good all these like exciting ideas begin flowing totally that you would never normally be thinking about. I, I, I like that way that you kind of like as a group of people, you're like uncorking the goofball mm-hmm. in, in like the collective mind. You're like really bringing out, at least this was my experience anyway, you're really bringing out this adolescent energy in like the totally. best way possible, but now being filtered through all these skills that you've developed over the years of being able to hone your mm-hmm. comedy. Um, um, how did you become an authority on pop culture and reality television? I watch so much TV. Yeah. I watch so much TV and I'm on Twitter all the time. Yeah. I love the internet, like love the internet. I especially adore Twitter. And I, for my last job on Fashion Queens, I had to start watching The Real Housewives of X, Y, and Z and then starting at A again through Z. Because how, many, how many are there? I, there's OC, Atlanta, New York, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, and I might be missing one, but I think there are currently five. Mm-hmm. So I watched, so that's like 30 women to keep up with, mm-hmm. and I had to start watching that, and so I got really into it. And then whenever I take a job, you know, like writing for like a, because a lot of what I do sometimes is write like the host copy for like reunion shows for reality shows. Mm -hmm. So then I'll go back and watch all 26 or 13 or whatever episodes of a reality show. And then I just sort of start putting that in the back of my mind. And then I can't help but become a fan of the show. And I can't help but like sort of start to keep tabs on all those people. And that's just sort of how I accumulate Information. Were, were, did you have that same kind of passion before you were working in the field? Is it something that like dovetailed into your job, or, or did you pick it up? Well, going back to my dad, when yeah. I was a kid, a huge like standoff in my house was that my dad thought it was okay for my sisters and I to watch The Real World, mm-hmm. and my mom did not. Mm-hmm. Like at 11 years old, I was like watching The Real World, and my mom hated that. She mm-hmm. thought it was way too racy. It was teaching us bad values. It was just completely inappropriate for mm-hmm. kids to be watching, which she has a point. Mm-hmm. But my dad had a different take on it. He was like, I'll watch it with them. And he would explain to us why what people were doing in the episodes were like not great life choices. Hmm. And it really stuck with me. So like even as a kid, basically to answer your question, I was obsessed with the real world and I was obsessed with television, um, all kinds of television sketch too, but I was just always a consumer of culture. Mm -hmm. Were you, are you a child of the eighties, nineties? Uh, yeah, I was born in 85. So like eighties, nineties. Okay. Uh, I'm a couple of years older than you are. Um, there was a point when I was between like maybe eight and 12 where I was watching, I don't know, nine hours of television a day or mm-hmm. something. I, I I remember really clearly having the schedule of the week memorized for every <laughs> channel. That's like how I knew what time of day it was is what was on TV. That's amazing. There's just like this period of your life where you're soaking so much of this shit into mm-hmm. your brain that it, it, you're like living this secondary lifestyle. Totally. Um, what kind of shows we, as a kid were you obsessed with? I would as a, like as a little, little kid, not little, but like as a kid, kid, I loved all that. Like mm-hmm. all those like snick shows, uh-huh. like Sabrina, the teenage witch, all that kind of stuff. Anything that was like geared towards like teens yeah. and preteens into it. Yeah. Loved the real world. I watched Hawaii, New York. Like I just was obsessed with Hawaii, especially like I still know all those cast members names. It's really sad. Yeah. Um, but I, Loved it. And then Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is still my favorite show of all time. Okay. I still haven't seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know. Please watch it. I will. I I mean, obviously. No, please. I will. 
I mean, I, and I'll give you like a guide to like how to get into it if you don't want to start at the beginning and go to the end. I'll, it's so good. I'll start at the beginning, okay. and I will gladly take your guides okay. for it as well. Okay. Yeah, I know. At this point, it, it's it's like a legendary show, and, and it's great that like Joss Whedon is like he's now this huge movie director and like he's a big name. Yeah. And so I think people have come to Buffy through that, or just because it's like a cult hit, basically. But it. That show really affected me as like a young woman. Yeah, like I love that show. Without knowing anything about it, what what about it reached you? What spoke to you about it? The female empowerment aspect, which as I was watching it as a kid, I did not um, like realize that that's how. Or as a teen, mostly, I didn't realize that 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 was how it was affecting me. Just like like the stories, mm-hmm. but to see that there was like one main character who. Um, was a girl who was the strongest person on the show at all times. Mm -hmm. That's a really huge thing. And I know spoilers, but as I got to the end of the series, then that's when it hit me that I was like, this whole show has been about female empowerment. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's great. It, I've been thinking about this a lot recently about the way that like stories, really good stories are sort of like time bombs in your head. Mm -hmm. Um, They begin kind of like, cultivating the 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 field in your mind to start like planting these new ideas that when you're a kid that's pretty much the experience you enjoy these stories mm-hmm. but they're having these like really interesting effects on the person that you're becoming and the values that you're starting to kind of think about and and I guess like your morals I, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about that but I guess that you do <laughs> like you put together a certain sense of your own morals and your own scruples based on how you feel about these characters mm-hmm. and these stories so like to that effect, like going back to your mom's point about watching real world, you know, like there definitely is of like you can pollute someone's mind watching too much crap for totally. sure. And but then at the same time, I feel like, well, you and I have grown into seemingly well adjusted, yeah. intelligent people, and we probably have an awful lot of crap floating around inside of our heads. Mm-hmm. What what as someone who works professionally in the industry, like what are your feelings on I know that's like a ludicrously big question. I, you know, I, part of me, I would love to be like, you know, people are ultimately responsible for their own actions and they shouldn't be, shouldn't look to pop culture to inform how they should behave or live their lives. Mm-hmm. But then I think about things like um, the interview that Diane Sawyer did with Caitlyn Jenner, who was mm-hmm. going by Bruce at the time. Mm-hmm. That interview really affected me and it really affected a lot of people Mm -hmm. that's not a small thing you know and I know that's not like a scripted thing but even I think about like when I work like I just got off a three-week job writing for a reality show reunion so I watched a bunch of episodes of the show and it's a show where people like speak to each other in not a nice way and like they curse a lot and whatever and I find myself after I've watched enough of those episodes I like start really letting the F-bomb fly in Mm -hmm. a way that I generally don't do but some part of my brain or something in me has kind of internalized that a little bit but you know I I just think of these great moments in TV like when Ellen said I'm gay on television Mm -hmm. like that even though it was a sitcom that was a huge moment Mm -hmm. so I think that it's there is some effect but it's not so large that like it's really really going to change who you are but I think you can internalize and like you said it becomes a time bomb yeah so then as things happen in your life you start to be like wait a second this is kind of like that's why I felt this way when I saw that thing yeah it's an interesting thing with pop culture because it gives you like for it, it first it, it speaks to you very directly in in this emotional way you know like it, all of the stuff that really affects you deeply in the pop world mm-hmm. it, it affects you very in a very primary kind of area of yourself you know mm-hmm. um, but it's interesting how like it does begin to populate your mind with these characters so that it gives you an ability to, I don't know, I don't know what I'm saying exactly. Your emotions are able to latch on to these characters from pop culture and then you suddenly mm-hmm. know something about how you're feeling. Totally. You know something about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what I, I liked so much growing up. Watching so much TV for me was like, not only did it feel familiar and it felt like a cast of like friends everywhere. I, I had mm-hmm. friends on every channel. Yeah. And very familiar friends on every channel. But you, you began to like, as you start going through adolescence, 
my feelings are starting to be filtered through these dumbass characters. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I get you. Yeah. And I, I find this interesting because I would never have pegged you for someone that was like a kid, like heavy TV watcher. And that, because I feel like people, when I tell them what I do or I tell them that I watch a lot of TV as a kid, they like write me off as like maybe not a serious person or not a person that cares about serious things or not an intelligent person. But I see you as a, an intelligent, serious, smart, interesting person and watching TV and those things are not mutually exclusive. No, and 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 I think that that's a bullshit argument for it's people so to stupid. diminish that because it's like that's the air that we breathe, and yeah. it's been that way for sixty years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, to dismiss that, it, to to be to be you know like oh I don't watch TV like eh, bullshit. Okay, yeah. I, I, yes, you do because you're <laughs> surrounded everywhere by it, right. every goddamn place. It, it we're media saturated. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Um, uh, yeah, I watched the show. I was telling my brother yesterday about, I remember really clearly in fourth grade being at a party. And uh, I had to leave the party early because I had to get <laughs> home in time for TGIF. Because <laughs> it was like so important to me. I think it was like the Halloween week of TGIF. Oh and I was like, God. I can't miss this. This party is stupid. I have to watch the Halloween yeah. week of TGIF. Yeah, I get that. I yeah. was that person. Yeah. I still am. Yeah. Thank God for DVR. <laughs> I still don't have DVR. You should get it. Yeah. It's actually, honestly, it is kind of a waste, yeah. like, but it's nice to like kind of huddle in and just like watch everything at once. Yeah. I, this is, I know I'm 10 years behind on this one mm-hmm. too. Explain Twitter to me, please. Oh my I, God. I'm not on Twitter. I, I know that people are very passionate about it. Can you explain Why? Twitter is where I get all of my information. Like if I see that someone's name is like popping up in every tweet, I'm like, what happened? Mm -hmm. That is how I, I'm trying to think if there was something big that I found out about on Twitter. Um, I can't pinpoint one thing, but generally like big life, like news moments, even I find out about that stuff on Twitter. I used to go to, I used to be someone that would like go to CNN, MSNBC every morning. And, uh, I, don't do that anymore. I just open Twitter because I now follow enough of a diversity of people mm-hmm. that are either, you know, really hard news people or soft news, fluffy news people, but it sort of covers it. So basically on Twitter, you cultivate, they're working on the building really hard. Uh, uh, you got to come to the Magnet Training yeah, Center and see how terrific it is. It's going to be amazing. They are really maintaining it. Um, you pick who you want to follow, basically, and then all of their tweets, whatever they decide to put out, shows up like in one feed. Mm-hmm. It's in one place for you. And you can reply to them. You can repost their tweets to your timeline, to your followers. You can favorite them, which is just kind of for you like to sort of give them a virtual like I like this type thing Mm -hmm. or to save for later depending on how you choose to use that Um, but it really is a I just feel like it's a great way to uh, have a conversation and don't even get me started on hashtag games which are my favorite thing in the world I'm gonna have to get you started on it hashtag games basically are like people (laughs) (laughs) people on Twitter like uh, it's generally like a, a black Twitter thing, which that's a whole other explanation. But mm-hmm. basically, like black Twitter is the same as Twitter, but there are like a, it's has sort of different cultural norms. Uh-huh. And a lot of times on black Twitter, so like um, when someone does something that's like a little bit weird, like say Paula Dean, the whole Paula Dean thing mm-hmm. happened. People, someone started a hashtag called Paula's Best Dishes. So hashtag Paula's Best Dishes, and they were all like. like racist spins Uh. on like uh, pancakes and stuff and like or like different recipes and so that was like something that everyone everyone can participate in like everyone becomes a joke writer Mm -hmm. everyone becomes a comedian everyone communally has the same platform and we're all like roasting Paula Deen by also and also proving how clever we can be Mm -hmm. and that is what makes Twitter fun that's interesting that's yeah I, I can understand that that's very interesting keeping your mind sharp and also like i don't know there's something kind of kind of interesting about the way that like the world of like entertainment has just like spilled over into this gigantic virtual reality thing mm-hmm. that now we're all participants in mm-hmm. uh, uh, all the time so like and and that borderline between like news and entertainment and comedy mm-hmm. it, it just seems like there are certain areas where it seems really really fluid it that, is very fluid And I feel like, but I still feel like I have standards. So like when I go to Us Weekly's website, which is like the most 
it's so pop culture leaning like they will have a a headline about January Jones's bangs like Mm -hmm. it's extremely that far I still have a line that I would appreciate they not cross Mm -hmm. so if they post something that's like breaking news January Jones got bangs I'm like that's not news even for the pop culture people like that's not actually news Mm -hmm. so I'm gonna need you to pump the brakes on that I need more of an actual substance here um, so it's interesting that like for whatever reason I have a line even there yeah with none of that matters ultimately yeah. but to me I'm like mm, this matters so much less that you shouldn't report on it what would qualify as like the base minimum for you for for something being newsworthy it has to be a story about so say you're a celebrity mm-hmm. if someone posts a story that's like Louis Cornfeld's third cousin get has its third birthday party that's not a story mm-hmm. it has to be about you or someone else that is related to you that is also famous mm-hmm. okay that's one of the rules okay how do you apply all these passions to the comedy that you do? Um, uh, uh, I, I guess like a broader way of asking that same question. Um, uh, this might be too broad, but like, what do you value in comedy when you're creating material, when you're improvising, when you're writing? What standard are you holding yourself to? I... In comedy, I feel like, and especially with improv and doing the things that I'm lucky enough to get to do, like Megawatt and Friday Night Show, my first thing is that I always approach it as an honor. It is such a huge honor and a privilege to walk onto a stage in front of however many people and have them sit and listen and laugh to what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Like, that to me, and it's the same with any writing job I take, like, this is always, like, baseline I am lucky Mm -hmm. to be here you're not lucky to be here to see me I'm lucky that's bottom line um then after that it's to have fun and to collaborate and to move the entirety of whatever is happening forward as opposed to like move myself forward Mm -hmm. so I think those are like the, the main things I so when I think of like um like talking head shows and like commentary shows and stuff it, it there's kind of like a stereotype in my head of like kind of jaded mm-hmm. easy mm-hmm. punch joker you know or like i love the 2000s and, mm-hmm. and what's the next iteration going to be i find something so like oddly uh uh beautiful <laughs> knowing that like there's actually very deeply passionate people who feel honored to have their voices heard in in creating this material. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something really wonderful about that of, I guess, maybe it goes back to this idea of being a participant and, 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 and talking back at what's going on around you and honing your opinion and honing your point of view, which in, in improv, it's like... That's so much of what you have on stage totally. is, is just your point of view and owning your opinion and seeing it through to the end. Uh, um, uh, I don't know if there's a question in there other than a renewed appreciation yeah. for something that, uh, 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 that maybe I've kind of been a little like snotty about. Well, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of those shows I found now are not, they're not made for us. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, like that kind of show, Best Week Ever, was not made for anyone that does improv in New York Mm -hmm. because clearly that level of humor, like they do those focus groups for every little thing, every little show you see on TV, there's a focus group for Mm -hmm. generally it's done at like a mall in Las Vegas Mm -hmm. where they get like just the most random assortment of people. And they're the question that you always have to ask, unfortunately is like, will someone that does not live here, that does not watch the daily show, that does not watch SNL, that does not get comedy. Will they understand what we're saying? If not, Move it down. But that's a double-edged thing, though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you can make the argument that... You want your audience to come to you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. On the other hand, being accessible, and I don't mean dumbing yourself down, but, but saying something that is understandable and relatable and is super important. Like that's something when I'm improvising, I'm, I'm, I'm always like, it's always in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Who's out there? 
and am I doing something that's like mm-hmm. inside or am I doing something that's that's accessible? Totally. And like I'm always really conscious about like uh, improvising. I'm always really conscious about wanting to play people that not that other people are going to like, but that other people aren't going to feel closed off towards. Exactly. Or that they'll recognize in some way. Yes. Yeah. Which I I don't think of that as like, there is the part of me of like, you got to come to me, mm-hmm. keep up with me. But then there's the other part that's like, well, you guys are doing me the kindness to hear what I have to yeah. say. And I have a certain responsibility to, to keep this accessible to you. Yeah. And so much of like what makes me laugh, like the muscle, I feel like in a lot of people that, that creates laughter in your body, it's like almost like a magnet almost where it's like you see something you recognize and then that part of you is drawn to that and that's what makes you laugh. So yeah. it's like, if there's no recognition there, if there's no, if it's all so strange and foreign to you, you're not going to laugh because you're going to spend most of the, your time trying to figure it out. Yeah. And so I think that that's why I like love, I wish I was a sillier person. Like I love watching like really silly players mm-hmm. because I'm like, that, that's so fun. Like it seems so fun and the audience is having so much fun and no one's sitting there trying to be like, what, what is, what is that from? What does that mean? Who is that person? Right. Yeah. What, you know, what trivia fact do I have to know to make this funny to me? Yeah. None of that. It's interesting that you say you wish you were a sillier person. I, recently I've been thinking of like, what are my ambitions? Like how, what do I, how do do I want to get better as a performer? And I've gotten into my mind that like, I want to start closing the gap between the way that I am on stage and the way that I am in the shower in the morning. I want to begin letting out more of my shower brain. Uh What is your shower brain? Very silly and very uninhibited and very like, you know, you're physically very relaxed mm-hmm. because of the warm water and stuff just seems to kind of come off the top of your mind out of your mouth. And and I I don't know if you're like this, but when I shower, I spend half the shower just having conversations with myself and characters, <laughs> like totally unmeditated conversations. Uh-huh. It just stuff starts coming out and you begin finding yourself in the middle of these scenes. And they're like voices and characters that I would never, ever right. do on stage. I, I'm so much more guarded on mm-hmm. stage. And that's sort of my ambition is to 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 bridge that gap and have that part of my brain feel more welcome, mm-hmm. you know, and less protected against. And I think of that as as being like looser. I don't know if it's less inhibited, but but more silly for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sh- your shower brain is my dog brain. Like that's how I am with my dog. Yeah, I have these like. In, I cre- create these like really in, like intense like scenes and like scenarios and the way that I speak to him is like very uninhibited and like I sing these songs to him that I make up I rap to him I do all this stuff and I'm like where is this person in the rest of my life yeah uh, it, it's interesting it's when you feel really safe you have this like audience that follows you around in your mind. Mm-hmm. And when you feel really, really safe, you're just putting on this show for this audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one reason why uh, most people, when they're by themselves, give them 10 minutes by themselves and they'll start dancing or rapping mm-hmm. or, or just like nonsense rhyming coming out of their mouths. It, it, there's some part of us that like when we feel safe and we don't feel like we're being... Uh, um, Judged, right? You go into this like funky performance mode, and it's extremely free. It's, and and you begin letting out all these different. I mean, I guess that's where all that shit, right? Yeah. Years and years of absorbing all this shit from TV and the world around you. That's where it must go. It gets filtered through you, and and attaches itself in these different combinations as you accumulate life experience. And then when you feel very, very safe, it begins coming out in these weird, funky, like totally. spaced out nonsense poems that you're making. Mm-hmm. I think the highest ideal as an improviser is to be able to access that and, and to let the real audience merge with the audience that you're always carrying around with you anyway. Totally. I'm going to work on that. Me too. <laughs> this is a, another big question, but I've been enjoying this one recently okay. too. Who are your heroes? Who are the people that you look up to? In life. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Comedy or just... Just in general. Hmm. Like when you have like the people, I, I assume everybody's like this, but that's a big assumption to make. But like I have like my cast of characters uh, uh, that like I really admire. And then I find that like that's kind of like the magnet out there 
that is like I'm trying to become more like these mm-hmm. people and it's almost like this amalgamation of your heroes is like your future self that you've projected out there and you're, yeah. you're trying to become more like that person do you have like any people that you particularly comedians or otherwise that you particularly feel like have made a big impact on on your aspirations definitely my grandparents mm-hmm. who are just like they're my like emotional like um, human in the world mm-hmm. heroes just because they have such an intense level of compassion they're the most giving people they they just are so giving of themselves that like that I'm always trying to like reach that level which I will never reach because mm-hmm. they, it's unattainable but I try so I'm like trying to be as close to that as I can um, as far as writing and comedy goes I like it's so cliche to say at this point but I've been saying it since before people knew who she was Tina Fey Mm -hmm. I when I found out that she was the first female head writer of SNL that was such a huge moment for me and to see someone that went from being an improviser who was kind of shy and like not really someone that people were like that girl is like the prettiest person in the room you know like she really really got where she is based on that brain. Mm-hmm. Like her brain is insane. Mm-hmm. And to see her go from someone that was, you know, just an improviser to a head writer on like a mainstay television show to then someone that wrote and, you know, wrote movies and then be like is in movies and is someone that is so revered in the comedy community. I, for me, my gold standard is always people that are writer performers because mm-hmm. those two things satisfy the like them them together satisfies the perfect spot like of my happiness yeah. basically like yeah. I love to write and I love to perform but I love to write and perform mm-hmm. simultaneously mm-hmm. so it's like the Tina Fey's the Mini Kalings like anyone that that does that and does it well I this is like a um, a controversial question mm-hmm. um, I don't think. Like, I never think in terms of, like, boy and girl improvisers mm-hmm. or boy and girl comedians, or at least I don't think I do. Right. Um, uh, uh, are you conscious, as a really good improviser, of, of, like, wanting more women to be inspired to be strong comedians? It's hard because, for me, and I have this conversation a lot, like, I... I I identify as a woman, but first I identify as black. Mm-hmm. So when I am, when I come out on Wednesday nights and I see someone like in the second or third row that's like black and like looks like they might be a student, I'm like, I'm doing this for this one right here mm-hmm. so that they can know that like this is something that can happen. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, yes, women for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's hard because growing up, I always felt such so secure in my womanhood. Like I have two sisters and a mom. So my dad was in the minority in our house, mm-hmm. you know, all the time I was like, I'm always like, yeah, women, we're doing it. We're doing it. Um, and so in improv now, especially there are many more women that are so successful and I love that. So now I'm like, let's take the next step. And mm-hmm. now I want more people of color to feel empowered mm-hmm. to perform. So, you know, it's not always the thing in the forefront of my mind, but, but it's something, it's something I'm conscious of. Yeah. And that, that goes along with what I'm saying. That it's like, it's an honor. And I want people to see that I, take this really seriously, this silly, fun thing, seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we talk for a second about Reductress? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Reductress is amazing. I love Reductress. Uh, I would assume that anybody listening to this is already well familiar with Reductress, but can you explain what Reductress does for anybody who who does not know? Yes. The bottom line Cliff's Notes version is that Reductress is to women's media and women's magazines as the onion is to like mainstream media mm-hmm. news. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a satirical humor site that sort of pokes fun at the cosmos, the Jezebels, the you know, the very for women by women things that really saturate the market on the internet or in print. Yeah. Reductress has like the perfect bite to it. Really it does. It's super sharp, but it's also super warm Mm -hmm. and it's just so, so funny. 
Um, uh, how do you go about writing headlines? Do you write headlines or full articles? Or, or I well, right now I like always like a pitch, probably a solid once a year now okay. at this yeah. point, just because my schedule. Um, but you really with Reductress, like you just pitch whatever at them, and you can specify whether it's a headline or a list or an article or a slideshow or whatever, mm-hmm. and they may agree with you, the editors Beth and Sarah, or they may not, and they may say this might be better as just a headline or whatever. Um, so it's just a mixture of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, do you have any particular favorite pieces that you've written? Oh, um, my favorite one that I've written, I think this one, there are two. One, uh, I think I, if I can remember the headline correctly, it was, I was broken up with, with, by Banksy via street art. Uh-huh, yeah. That one I really liked. And then also an early one that I did was um, my best friend stole my baby name because that's something that like really like, I see it a lot like on Twitter, people getting in heated fights about their friend who had a baby first, yeah. naming their kid yeah. the name that they picked. Yeah. And that is a funny concept to me. Do you think Twitter and uh, Facebook and stuff are making people angrier? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> Does that make you laugh? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, it totally does. It makes me angrier for sure. Like, I have to, like, honestly, like, I'll see something, I'll be like, ah, with my hands out, and I just have to literally, physically pull myself away and be like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's the internet. I went to um, vacation Bible school with this person in 1997. It's not really that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how, like, I mean, I guess it's not that interesting. The rise in cultural anger everywhere just because mm-hmm. of our ability to poke at each other constantly seems mm-hmm. to go hand in hand with the rise of satirical totally. news outlets uh-huh. and the rise of everybody doing comedy. It, it's almost like you need that other, we just need to all be funny all the time. All the now. time. And it never gets old to me. Like, I'll post like a reductress article. Um, about how someone's penis got broken or something like that. And my grandma's friend will like comment on my Facebook status being like, this is terrible. And I'm like, Oh God, no, it's, it's a joke. Yeah. It do is you, a joke. Do you, is that what the future has in store for us? Do you think, do you think we just all need to be funny all the time now? <sighs> kind of. But I also hate when people try to be funny. Like Me I, too. I hate I don't want to say I hate bits, but I hate bits. I do too. Okay. I, I purposely don't go I out after anything because I don't want to hang out and do bits. I don't like bits. And yeah. I, this is like, I feel passionately that like black lives matter and that I hate bits. Yeah. Like, honestly, I feel that strongly about it. Yeah. I do not like them. Yeah. I don't like just expending energy or feeling like you have to entertain people at all times. Like yep. I really don't like that. Yep. Um, so I am always a person where like at work I'll start a new job and people will be like, I'll be like, Oh, I got to go do a show. And they're like, well, what kind of show? An improv show. You do improv. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that you were funny. Mm-hmm. I'm always happy when someone says that to me. Cause then that means I'm not being like a clown. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. Oh, oh, it's funny. You don't strike me as an improviser. That's because you have the worst impression in your mind of what an improviser exactly. is. Exactly. Like you think that everyone's like carrying around whoopee cushions and like. Yeah. Although that being said, I've read a lot of stories about Leslie Nielsen and his fart machine. It's and true. they sound delightful. Exactly. So it's kind of hard. I don't want to blanket say I hate bits. No, but, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I think of that as like predatory comedy. Mm-hmm. When someone corners me to be really funny at me. I feel like I'm under attack. Yes. I feel like they're like trying to draw blood so that they can mm-hmm. like feast on my vitals. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It, it's it, true because it's for them, not you. Exactly. But there is something to like. I, I think that like, short of uh, uh, like the grid going down and Skynet mm-hmm. taking over, you know, I think that at least our near future involves a lot more like clashing with each other over everything totally and along with that uh, uh, in order to kind of cope in this emerging reality i think people have to become smarter and funnier and not not in that predatory way right but just have more of a sense of humor the, about yes the, the ability to spot what's funny the ability to diffuse a sense of self-importance which mm-hmm. is a really really big part of it mm-hmm. it's recognizing uh, um 
uh, maybe where you're being a little bit ridiculous and recognizing where you're taking yourself with a great dose of self-importance, mm-hmm. but also the ability to adapt your thinking really quickly. Yes. I think that's where people are either going to get dumber or, or they're going to get smarter. And going with smarter means getting funnier, too. Yes, I agree. How's your family feel when they see your, your comedy? They really, well, I'll start with my fiance, who is my family. She hates improv. So she (laughs) (laughs) stares into the distance during shows, except for when I'm on stage. And then I can see her sort of staring through me, Uh like looking, she's facing the stage. But she's still coming to your show. She's still, I mean, she hasn't, she hasn't seen Titan Uh and she hasn't seen Friday night show. Okay. It's been a while. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When she does come, it's like, I can see her eyeline, like sort of to the corner of the room. Um, um, but she like loves comedy. Like she loves John Stewart. She actually tells me she's like, if you, if you did stand up, I would come all the time. She mm-hmm. just doesn't like improv, which mm-hmm. is fine. My parents are really supportive, really love it to the point that my dad started taking improv classes in oh, St. Okay. Louis. So he now he and I can now have more specific conversations mm-hmm. about like forms and beats and moves and all that stuff that we may not have had a year ago before he became an improv student. That's interesting. It kind of takes it all full circle. Mm-hmm. You're like back on, on this level of yeah. like being a peer with your dad. Yeah. Uh, except you have more experience now. In this I know. Field, and so, so he like calls me like before auditions and stuff and he's like, any tips? And I'm like, yeah, do this. That's so interesting. Yeah. What is he auditioning for? Like teams? He was like auditioning for a team or something like that. No kidding. Yeah. And he was a monologist in like their uh, Armando Diaz experience type show that they did. Oh, that's and so cool. I, it was like just so cool to hear that he was like doing that. Yeah. It was crazy. How's he doing with it? He's he's doing great. He loves it. He lo- he has a duo that he does. Get out of town. So wow. Funny. It's great. That's a perfect way to come full circle. Mm-hmm. Lauren Ashley Smith, thank you for talking. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is so fun. Yeah, this is great. Thank you very much. And thank you guys all for listening. This has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. Uh, uh, big thank you to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our engineer, uh, 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 Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and to all the good people here at the Magnet Theater Training Center. We offer great classes. We have awesome shows. Please check it out online, Magnet Theater is the website that can give you all that information. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and give us a positive rating. If you didn't enjoy the episode, good for you for making it through all the way anyway. That's a power move. Big thanks to Lauren Ashley Smith. I've been Lewis Kornfeld. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast.